Hello and welcome to Wellbeing. I'm Dr. Virginia Reid and today I'm delighted to have on the program Professor Gary Egger. Welcome, Gary. Hi, Virginia. So, Gary, you're an expert on obesity. I don't know about an expert, but it's the area that I've been forced into over the last 20 years. It has become one of the world's major health problems and we've got to look to uh, uh, the causes of that and why and try and work out uh, what it is that's going wrong that's causing uh, such a, a big increase in obesity. There's probably about one and a half billion people worldwide now who are regarded as overweight or obese. If we take the Australian figures, uh, it's about 35% who are what we regard as obese, and I'll define that in just a minute. But when you look at overweight and obese, it goes up to about 65% in men and about 58% in women. Why would you want to differentiate between obese and overweight? It's basically a question of, of size and obesity is uh, an extension of overweight so that we, we generally measure overweight uh, by weight over height squared. It's a thing called body mass index which is used in clinical practice by many doctors. It's not a very good measure because it doesn't take account of muscle and so it discriminates against certain people. Older people, for example, shrink in height. So if you take their height over their weight, their weight over their height squared, as they get older, they tend to increase their body mass index and therefore seem to be putting on weight, but they've actually just shrunk in height. And a 70-year-old uh, or an 80-year-old uh, person can be 6 to 10 centimetres shorter than they were when they were younger. So that, that uh, shows up significantly in these weight measures. The other group that it does discriminate against is athletic men. Now, if you look, for example, at the uh, rugby league players or the rugby union players, they're quite often not that tall but very mesomorphic, so they carry a lot of muscle. And when you measure their weight over their height squared, they have a body mass index which sometimes indicates that they're obese. And, in fact, I had the whole of a, a first-grade rugby league side approached me many years ago because their doctor had w measured them, uh, their body mass index, and told them that they were all obese and they needed to take off weight. Now, th these are some of the fittest men on the planet. They've got a body fat of about 3%, which, which is extremely low. So it doesn't work so, so well in those people. Uh, so we need another measure. And the other measure that we use, there, there are measures that we can use in the laboratory, but the other measures that we use, the other simple measure that we use is just a waist circumference because where people put on weight, particularly men, around the middle, around the trunk, and that's more dangerous than fat that's put on elsewhere. So that if the waist circumference is more than, let's say, roughly around about 100 centimetres for most groups of men, then that's indicating that uh, body fat is creeping up to a level where it may start to be dangerous. I say may because we're going to get into talking about that. There are some cases where it's not necessarily dangerous. And what about for women? 100 centimetres for men? Women are a bit harder to measure because women actually don't put on weight around the middle in their early stages. And if you think about why that is, if, if you were Mother Nature, you would probably uh, say, well, uh, these women we're going to let have babies and if they get big pot bellies like uh, men who overdo it, which incidentally it's quite often called the beer gut, which is a misnomer. It's not related to beer. It's what related to what's, what's related to what goes with the beer and the alcohol rather than the beer itself. But if, if women were to get a gut like that and then to have a baby on top of that, there's not going to be much room in there for that baby. So nature is designed at such that women tend to store 
their body fat premenopausally at least in the lower body around the hips and buttocks and in the breasts and in the backs of arms and so on. So a waist circumference measure is not as reliable for a woman. We can use BMI much much more reliably for, for a woman. But as women get older and as they hit menopause, they tend to put on weight more. And women listening to this who are past that menopausal stage will, will very quickly identify with this. They uh, tend to put on weight more around the middle uh, because they're no longer fertile and able to have babies. And therefore, they store the fat much more like a man. And incidentally, it becomes more dangerous to store fat after menopause for women. The good news is that this is just a function of modern society. If you look at societies like in New Guinea and even Japan, where uh, women are more active in their later life and don't increase their, their food intake, they don't put weight uh, on around the middle in menopause so much. Uh, so it's not such an issue. Okay, so what is the problem with being fatter in the middle? And that's a good question because it's got a historical precedent. Back about 1948, uh, Jean Vague, who was a, a French uh, endocrinologist, uh, found that it wasn't just weight that was the problem. It, up until then, it was thought that people who are big and uh, overweight, like in traditional times, you know, there was only a very small, small proportion of the population who were obese. And if you think of Dickens, you know, the fat boy Joe in, in Dickens' uh, novels, he he stood out and those people who are old enough like me can think back to their school days and you can remember probably one or two fat kids in school but that was that was it uh, because genetically uh, they were prone to become fat but the rest of the population um, were able because they didn't have an oversupply of food and because we were much more active in those days they didn't get a, as fat as that so Varg said well okay maybe it's not just being big that's the issue it's where you're big and he came up with this waist to hip ratio which is the measurement of round the waist compared to round the hips and if your waist was much bigger than your hips then he suggested that there was something going on that uh, increased the risk factors for heart disease and diabetes and some other chronic diseases because of that central obesity it was only in the, about the 1990s that we found that this wasn't quite accurate either because it wasn't the, the subcutaneous fat or the fat that's obvious around the middle. It's what we call the visceral fat, which is internal fat around the organs of the trunk that's, that are more important. So you can be quite lean and still have a high level of visceral fat around the liver, the heart, even the kidneys uh, and the omenta, the stomach there. Uh, and that then is more difficult to measure. You have to get a, an MRI scan or some sort of imaging to measure the, the fatness around there. But if you've got high levels of visceral fat, it's potentially more dangerous than if you've just got high levels of subcutaneous fat. Now, the best example of that is the sumo wrestlers. If you look at the sumo wrestlers when they're training, they do a lot of exercise, they do eat a lot of food, they keep very fit in their early life. So up till the time when they quit uh, wrestling professionally, they have big bellies and therefore high subcutaneous fat. But if you measure their visceral fat, the fat around the organs, it's very low and their risk factors are very low until they get to the point of retirement. When they, when they retire, they don't exercise, they don't train as much, and the visceral fat increases, and then their lifespan is, is, uh, is limited, and they quite often die in their early 50, late 40s or early 50s as a result of that. There are simple uh, ways of measuring visceral fat, and one of the ones that we use just in clinical practice is what's called the triglyceride waste. 
triglyceride is a fat in the blood, but if the triglyceride's high and the waste is more than the recommended level, then that indicates that your visceral fat is probably high and therefore you've probably got what's called spillover fat. And we'll get into more into that as we, we go on. But uh, spillover fat means that your body is no longer storing the fat that it's taking in in the fat cells that are made to store it. Uh, it's just outgrown those fat cells and the spillover fat goes into the blood and, and the, the liver and the kidneys and so on or, and, and the uh, visceral fat. And then it becomes much more dangerous. While fat is stored in the fat cells, and we have between 50 and 100 billion of these fat cells on the body, but they're only microscopic, tiny little things on the body. Uh, you know, if you pinch your your uh, biceps muscle, for example, and then you just rub your fingers around, you can feel the fat underneath the skin there. That's, that's fat. Uh, and we have fat all over the body, and those fat cells fill up as we take in extra energy and we don't burn up enough energy. But as long as it's being stored in the fat cells, then it's not an issue. It's when it overflows from those fat cells to become uh, into the viscera, to become visceral fat, it becomes more potentially dangerous and more health-wise. So uh, it's not something to be complacent about. You can't just say, oh, I'm fat and healthy. Uh, but it is true that some people are fat and healthy, but they may go over the stage. They, their fat cells may be just hanging in there waiting to flow over, and the next bit of fatty food they eat or the next bit of energy surplus that they have uh, flows over. So uh, there's no complacency about being fat. We should always try and get rid of that extra fat or at least not try and put it on if we want to maintain good health over the long term. You're listening to Wellbeing and my guest today is Professor Gary Egger, Adjunct Professor Health Sciences Southern Cross University and Director Centre for Health Promotion and Research. Gary, it seems to me that if you are putting that fat into, I see it as a GP, the evidence for that being usually that the liver function tests are now starting to alert me to the fact that there's something going on. You get an ultrasound and you get back the diagnosis fatty liver and I believe fatty liver is really going up in incidence. You know, we're beginning to think that the corollary of that might be as it is when you have, say, hepatitis or damage to liver cells from alcohol, cirrhosis, etc., you get an increased risk of hepatocellular carcinoma. We're now thinking that the fatty liver, I believe, may be a risk factor for hepatocellular carcinoma. So in other words, we're not just talking about a benign sort of chubby kidney, chubby liver. What we're actually talking about now is increasing your risks of things like cancer. Yeah. Now, you know about this better than me because you're doing these measurements all the time. You're a clinician. But uh, as you know, uh, alcoholic-induced fatty liver is quite different to just obesity-induced fatty liver. And it's a little bit difficult to distinguish that on some occasions. So you need to look at the fat uh, elsewhere, not just in the liver, but elsewhere if you want to get an indication of... uh, of uh, the, the, the health risks of that. Um, there are some people that say, well, it doesn't really matter as long as you're overweight and, and carrying excess fat. That is not just overweight through excess muscle, but carrying excess fat. Then we need to do something about not putting any extra on or at least getting some of that off because it's going to, it's going to be helpful, helpful. But there are other people who suggest that you can be overweight and be quite healthy. And we know about 30% of people who are 
classified under the traditional guidelines of classification for, for obesity uh, are perfectly healthy. And if you look at their parents and their parents have lived to a ripe old age, then there's an indication that this is probably uh, what we call metabolically healthy obesity. But there's no guarantee that it's going to stay like that. And in fact, the recent studies that have been done show that uh, after eight or 10 years of being like that, it might change to be unhealthy fat, so metabolically unhealthy fat. So it, it then starts to affect uh, the health side of it. So we can't be complacent about obesity, but, but from a, a scientific perspective, it's much, much more complicated than what it looks. The other issue that we really will probably get into in another edition of this is why is this happening in modern society at the moment? We know why it's happening to individuals because their energy balance is in excess. And when I say energy balance, I, I mean that they're taking in more energy. And by energy, I mean calories or kilojoules in the form of food and drink. And they're burning up less in the form of physical activity or movement. But why is that happening at the individual level? It means that you're either eating too much, eating and drinking too much. And don't forget, drinking of soft drinks and other uh, uh, high energy uh, drinks, such as fruit juice, account for about 20% of our total energy intake. So we've got to look at drinking as well as eating. And then the moving side, but we don't just look at exercise, we look at movement. It's interesting there'll be some people in the country listening to this. It's interesting to know that farmers, for example, in the last 20 years, have put on a lot more weight than their city cousins because 20 years ago they were doing much more physical activity, whereas today they've got machines to do just about everything for them. And they might think that this is just, uh, I'm eating too much these days. It's, it's not necessarily that. It's the combination of the energy in minus the energy out that causes the problem. But having said that too, energy in and energy out can be influenced by other things. And this is what we'll get to when we talk about the, the bigger problem, the obesity epidemic, for example, that it may be influenced by the environment. It may be influenced by uh, pollution. It, it, we know that it, has, that it is influenced by certain aspects of uh, the environment that are also causing climate change. And, and when we look at those two things, we talk about it as being a syndemic, not just a pandemic, but a syndemic. The pandemics in both obesity and climate, for example, uh, that we really need to look at what's the underlying cause of both of these things. But I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Uh, no, so what you're postulating there is that previously the paradigm has simply been that if you put too many kilojoules in and you don't expend those kilojoules in terms of exercise, therefore you will create fat. Yes, and exactly. the fat get goes is stored in fat cells, but when it starts to be stored in organs, particularly yes. in the abdomen, then it's It becomes it affects your health by increasing your risk of diabetes, carcinoma, and uh, cardiovascular disease. Yeah, you're spot on. You've summed, summed it up. Right, and what is now being postulated though is that the current environment which we have created, if you to believe the geologists and this 
arguments again in that scientific community, are we now in the Anthropocene instead of the Holocene, the Holocene coming after the Ice Age, which was nothing really much to do with puny little men, mankind, but the Anthropocene is definitely to do with mankind. We're creating our own climate, which is a whole other paradigm that's coming to be. Is that environment, your group of experts is postulating, is actually affecting the way that we manage those calories in as well? Yeah, and, and it's not only that. It's the, the fact that what's making us become overweight or obese as a population is also what's uh, adding to climate change or, or uh, precipitating the problem. The simplest way of looking at this, and I've been involved in a big study out in, on Norfolk Island looking at uh, what we can do about this. If you imagine that you drive everywhere instead of walk everywhere, then not only aren't you burning manpower, so in other words, burning energy through the walking that you would do personally and therefore keeping your weight down that way, but you're adding to the climate uh, effects through the increase in carbon in the atmosphere that comes from the driving of, of the vehicles around. Uh, so the, the two things are intimately related and we can show even there's an even closer comparison when we look at things like inflammation in the body. Recently, we've discovered this new form of inflammation, which comes from our lifestyle, which is can be equated with inflammation in the environment, which uh, also uh, reduces the ability for the earth. And earth science is called gear, it was called by uh, one particular earth science many years ago. Uh, the, the earth is unable to soak up all the carbon that's put out into the atmosphere. Let's forget right from the outset any arguments about climate change. I mean, that argument has been settled. It only hasn't been settled by people who are ignorant of the facts of what's going on in, uh, in the environment. Let's not get into that argument. I think we waste time getting into that argument. But if you think about it, the earth, the gear of the earth is the is the surroundings of the earth, not just the earth itself, but the atmosphere surrounding the earth, which incorporates the whole of the earth. And Gia, uh, according to some uh, earth scientists, is, is a living structure, and it always adjusts to manage what's going on in the world. For example, after the, the dinosaurs became extinct in the Ice Ages through the uh, uh, meteorite that they think uh, hit the earth, I mean, that's the, the current hypothesis at the moment, then the Earth changed dramatically, but gear adapts very well. And a lot of people are saying, well, you know, we have to look after the environment. We have to look after the Earth. Um, the people who develop this notion of gear say, you don't have to look after the Earth. The Earth will look after itself. We have to look after mankind. And mankind and womankind, <laughs> of course, are something new uh, on the Earth. And they're in plague species at the moment. And they're more likely to be wiped out. The Earth won't be wiped out but it's humanity that will be wiped out if we don't get these things right. It's not just to us, it's to all living things. On the, I mean, it's why some species are dying out as well. Uh, but the Earth will adjust to that. Once those species are gone and once we've gone, if we don't correct ourselves, uh, then the Earth will adjust and it will come up with something else uh, that will work in a better way. So gear has always been there and gear has always adjusted. Human beings have only been around for you know, a few millions of years and... And we haven't really adjusted to the situation yet. Well, what we're postulating is that the way that we're, that we're not walking at the moment is that we're adjusting things not in our favour. Exactly, exactly. In terms of survival. Yep. So the mechanism there, with, with the reason that you've gone out to the island to study 
people is because they still walk around quite a bit. No, the opposite. They actually drive around everywhere. They used to walk around a lot. And what we tried to do was to put a price on uh, fuel uh, such that people would be given incentives not to burn fuel and therefore to walk more and to ride bikes more around the island. Uh, We were undercut, if you like, by some of the uh, shock jocks on radio who formed a um, vigilante committee against us pretty much, even looking at the science of this uh, because they just didn't agree with the whole whole perspective. Uh, so we weren't able to do the full experiment that we wanted to do. But we did find that there were, were some effects that uh, if you uh, create education around both climate change and obesity, you do get changes in behaviour that are positive towards uh, what may result in a decrease in both obesity and the carbon emissions that go into the atmosphere. You're listening to Wellbeing and my guest today is Professor Gary Egger, an expert and a long hard battler in the in the fight against the public health menace of obesity. If I may go back, Virginia, because I, I just recalled that I didn't answer your initial questions as how basically did I get into this. I started in health in 1970, I think it was, or 71. I'm non-medical, so uh, my background was in behavioural biology which was nice for looking at prevention. What do you do about preventing the major diseases of the time? And back in those days, we had just moved into the chronic disease era. Heart disease was at its peak in 1968. Uh, Smoking was one of the major risk factors. And we had to look at what can we do to reduce this in the early stages. I went back and added to my academic qualifications by doing epidemiology, which is basically the study of diseases and their cause. So I had the two things going then. One is, you know, how do you determine what's causing the problem? And then how do you uh, promote this? How do you get involved in health promotion that can change behaviours that influence this? And so through the 80s and the 90s, I was involved in the exercise and fitness revolution, but also looking at smoking. And it's one of the big successes, I think, that I and uh, just a few other people of quite a few very serious other people in Australia uh, can regard as uh, our success in, in our professional life, and that is reducing smoking. Down, We now have the lowest level of smoking in Australia, and it's starting to show in things like lung cancer statistics that are starting to come out now. But about 1978, I realised that one of the, the biggest problems coming up was going to be obesity. And the obesity epidemic actually started in Australia in 1980. It had been simmering for many years since the war, but only at a very low level. And in 1980, it started to take off. And so I thought, well, this is where I'm going to have to spend my time in the future. And this is going to be a harder one to deal with. I mean, it took 200 years to get rid of smallpox. but So it was going to take a lot longer to get rid of, and it is going to take a lot longer to get rid of obesity in a situation where eating is very comfortable and not doing much is also very, very comfortable. And that both of those things create obesity. So um, I, I got more involved in, in uh, obesity and overweight in the 1990s and have been stuck there for the last almost 30 years now trying to, to do something about that. Uh, and uh, when I say do something about it, it's doing something about it at the individual level because it's, it's in some respects it's not that difficult to help people lose weight at the individual level. But when you throw them back into the current environment, It's like smoking. You know, we used to run quit smoking programs many years ago 
and people would say, yes, that's it, I'm going home and I'm going to give up smoking. But then they'd turn on the television and there's Paul Hogan saying, anyhow, have a windfield. So the environment overwhelms everything else that's going on and all the other education that, that uh, people have learnt. And it's the same thing with uh, overweight and obesity. You can work at the individual level, but when you've got, when you've got a society out there saying, uh, go and buy more processed foods, go and buy more fatty foods, you've got ads on television encouraging that, it's a very, very difficult thing to do at that level. So we have to turn to look at the societal level. What is it in society that's causing obesity uh, at the individual level? And any good epidemiologist doesn't just look at the cause of something. They look at the cause of the cause and then the cause of the cause of the cause and the cause of the cause of the cause, of the cause right back to what's the, the, the basic underlying problem. And if you do that, you, have, you, you can't go any further than look at modern industrial society. But what is it in modern industrial society that's causing the obesity epidemic and causing people to have this energy surplus by eating too much and, and uh, not uh, being active enough to get rid of it? And that's, that's where it becomes much more complicated, and that's where we might need extra time to talk about that and what we can do about it. Mm. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion so far, and I thank you very much. Unfortunately, I do think we're out of time, but I would like very much to come back and discuss the modern epidemic of obesity, undernutrition, and its links with climate change. So, Professor Gary Egger, thank you so much for your time and giving us insight into obesity, its causes, and hopefully the hope for the future for its prevention. Okay, thank you, Virginia. I'm Dr. Virginia Reid and all of us here at Wellbeing would like to say we wish you well.